I'm going to record this, and we'll, I'll know afterward if I've said something worthwhile. This, this handout is not to give you a headache. I just wanted you to have on one side the, the text of the first 18 verses of John's Gospel with the Greek, uh, one of the Greek versions of it. And then I, I transliterated the Greek in case you don't read Greek letters so that you can identify words. And then on the other side, what I did is I, I have the same text again, the prologue of John's Gospel, and then some parallel passages from the letter to the Hebrews and the letter to the Colossians by St. Paul. And uh, I'm going to talk about uh, parallels to the prologue because it's, it's helpful to compare what St. John says with what other writers in the New Testament have to say about the pre-existence of the Son of God, etc. Uh, before I, I want to set the stage, as it were, for the prologue to John's Gospel. Uh, and let me begin by saying this. Uh, it's important for us to keep in mind as much as we can through daily life that the Christian faith is not primarily a moral system. Uh, and in fact, some of you will remember when Brother Linus was with us, he said it's not a religion. Uh, and then he left it for me to explain that to you. <laughs> uh, but there are good reasons for saying this. And the, the idea that it's not a religion, that comes from an Orthodox priest, uh, Russian Orthodox priest by the name of Father Alexander Shmeman. And what he meant by that is, again, our, our faith, we have lots of practices, we have moral teachings, but those are secondary to the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation of God, the revelation of the truth, and the transformation that we undergo in baptism, and the ongoing transformation we undergo uh, by God's grace. We become different people. And so what the Christian revelation is, is it, it's a revelation, it's a faith. It's our response to God revealing himself to us. Now from that flow certain expectations of behavior, uh, certain ritual things that we do together to help remind ourselves to grow in this grace and so on. Um, but I want you to keep this in mind because this passage at the beginning of John's Gospel is this amazing revelation of God, of the Son, of our adoption as sons and daughters of God and what this means. It's quite a profound and dense piece of poetry at the beginning of, of the fourth Gospel and it's had a huge impact on the church, as I will explain. Uh, so let me just spin this out, though, a little more about what I mean that Christianity is not a moral system. Now, the very idea of religion, as we understand it in the modern world, is really an enlightenment idea. Uh, and, and the idea that each culture has its religion. This is, uh, believe it or not, this is a relatively recent idea. Um, and if, if you want to get a good... Uh, sampling of what this means, there's a book called uh, The Myth of Religious Violence by um, Kavanaugh. I, I'm forgetting his first name now. Um, but uh, it, it's an excellent book. And the first part of it is explaining the idea that you know, religions are divisive and inherently uh, violent in some way, opposed to each other, assumes that there's some idea of religion. But this idea of religion was created in the Enlightenment so that we could say that religions were violent and divisive so that the secular world would be unitive 
and just the truth, right? So that's uh, part of the Enlightenment's heritage that we're dealing with. And the fallout from this for us is that we think of ourselves as practicing a religion with a moral code rather than knowing God, knowing the truth, and, and then having some imperative to make that truth known to others. One of the ways in which we can learn to live this is to remind ourselves the goal of our faith is not to become better versions of ourselves. Uh, it's to become different persons. <laughs> it's actually to change. It's to become transformed. Um, some point, I, I've written about this on, on the blog that I, I can sometimes write on these days on our website, um, and maybe I'll go into more detail on this, but I've come to the conclusion myself, I'm of the opinion that the big obstacles to this transformation are what I call the cult of sincerity and the cult of technology. Uh, the cult of sincerity is this idea that I become myself by sort of checking to make sure I'm sincere about what I say and do, rather than, again, doing something that I might not feel like doing right now, but it's the correct thing to do, right? Um, and uh, because sincerity kind of mires us in where we're at now. I, I only go as far as I feel like going now because I check to see how I feel about it. Uh, whereas if I'm called out of how I feel to, to witness to something that goes outside of my experience and my comfort zone, uh, I, I change, right? Uh, there, there's no change without challenge, without growth. And growth always, uh, remember back to when you're a teenager and your legs would ache at the end of the day, you know, there's no growing without growing pains. And so uh, this transformation into a different kind of person uh, is connected to the cross, I would say, in that regard. In terms of uh, technology, I'm not opposed to technology itself. When I, when I say cult of technology, I mean a kind of belief that the world exists for us to manipulate for our own desires, you know, so we can make things easier for ourselves, we can fix things up so that uh, uh, we don't have to work as hard and so on. And that's what the world is there for. Uh, the problem with this is the kind of change in perception and awareness that we are trying to achieve is a contemplative one in which the, the created things of the world, all things were created through him. That's what we say in the prologue to John's gospel. All things were created through him. And, and the one that we say is him is the logos, the word or the reason or the intellect or however we want to translate logos. You can translate it in many ways. Uh, that means all things were created to communicate God to us. And if we simply use things to, for our own purposes, we might miss what God is communicating because he's speaking through the, the created things. Okay. And so a cult of technology, sort of reducing everything to its usefulness, uh, obstructs for us the kind of vision that we're trying to cultivate, a vision of seeing God, God's glory shining through created things. Okay? And again, in the, in the prologue, it says we've seen his glory. Now, in, in one way, this means the apostle is witnessing to the fact he saw Jesus hanging on the cross, pierced through the side with blood and water flowing out. This is Christ's glorification in John's gospel. His reigning from the cross and pouring out sacramental grace on the world to transform it. Uh, but we also see his glory in all things when we come to this contemplative awareness of God in, in all things. Uh, and again, the cult of technology, I think, obstructs this. And it makes it difficult to understand then what... <coughs> Uh, John is saying in this passage. 
So the revelation of Jesus Christ transfers us to a new home. We become new persons. We become persons on pilgrimage to this new home. And prayer and the liturgy and uh, the study of the Bible and so on, these things acclimate us to this new state of affairs and transforms our desire from earthly things. We, we start off when we're kids, you know, it's normal, like to survive, you need to desire food and, and sleep and so on. Uh, but we can get sidetracked by our desires for those. And we want to cultivate a desire for heavenly things. And again, the prologue will be a nice condensed way of meditating on this. Let me offer two examples of this transformation and then we'll, we'll get into the actual text of the prologue. First of all, St. Paul. Um, so... He's actually quite proud of his accomplishments as a faithful Jewish follower of the law. Um, this sometimes comes as a surprise to people when they read uh, Philippians. He says, you know, among my uh, compatriots, I was first in line. I, I, I followed the law better than anybody. And, uh, and he's proud of that. He's not saying that this was a mistake in some way. But he says, now having met Jesus Christ, I, I don't regard that as anything important anymore. Okay. So uh, it's not that he's becoming a better follower of the law. It's he's become Paul. He's not Saul, the Benjaminite anymore. He's, he's Paul. He's this, this new person. Um, he's been transformed into a prophet. Uh, so again, Paul, the Lord didn't reveal himself to Paul just so that Paul could be nicer and kinder and stop murdering people. Uh, though that, that's what happened, right? Paul realized, oh my gosh, if this is true... If the person I'm persecuting is actually the son of God, obviously my behavior has to change. But the point is to know Christ, right? It's to know him and, and have this relationship with him and be transformed by this relationship in the Holy Spirit. Um, so, you know, another thing, it's, it's not that Paul now celebrates mass instead of going to the temple. We see in the Acts of the Apostles, he continues going to the temple even after he's baptized. Uh, but... He's a new man now. He's a different sort of person than he was before. Uh, my other comparison is with uh, the sacrament of marriage. So, for example, to say that marriage exists uh, so that we can reform our morals, um, you know, would be, we, we hope we change when someone gets married. You know, we hope that they become better in some way. But to make this the point would be to miss the point. <laughs> that's not what marriage is for ultimately when two people get married their behavior changes right? by necessity you have to get used to a new person in your life uh, circumstances come up you can't make your own decisions anymore right? so, so one changes right? And, uh, but one changes because in this sacrament is revealed something about oneself is revealed something about one's spouse and about God that's new and it can only be achieved through this, this sacrament, through this transformation. And um, uh, to realize the grace involved in the sacrament requires a kind of self-renunciation so that I can change. I can separate from whom I was before, right? So uh, we have in the Christian life again, a change in who we are, a transformation. And from this flows a change of behavior and a change of ritual, okay? Uh, but the, the change in behavior is not the goal. <laughs> the, 
It's, it's helping us to become that new person that we glimpse that we're going to be, okay? So now let's get to John. I think that John's gospel is a great remedy for the modernist reductionist idea that our faith is one religion among many. Uh, it's easy to read the synoptic gospels, for example, as a, a listing of the teachings of Christ, right? And of course, they, they do have lots of teachings. So does John. Uh, but John's gospel always is pushing us beyond just conforming our behavior to a series of rules. But it's pushing us to say, who is this man, Jesus Christ? I think the synoptics do this too. It's most obvious in Mark's gospel. Uh, Mark has these very thorny passages that are hard to understand. Matthew and Luke kind of soften them a little bit. So for instance, when the, uh, the rich young man comes to Jesus and says, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. Now, our, our Lord, he could be saying two things here. He could be saying, uh, you shouldn't call me good because I'm not God. Or he could be asking this question because he wants to challenge this young man. If you say that I'm good, what do you mean by that? Who do you think I am? Right? The rich young man doesn't get it. And that's, that's a sign that he's not going to understand the invitation that Jesus gives him to give away everything and follow him, right? So this, this lack of understanding begins with a failure to see if he's going to call Jesus good, he might have to ask a, a really serious question. Is he God, right? If there's only one who's, who's good. So Mark has a number of these sorts of paradoxes. If you look at them carefully, uh, Mark is challenging us to make an act of faith, to change the way we see this man. He's not just a teacher. He's something more than that. He's the son of God, which is what Mark says in the first verse. <laughs> the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, right? And again, it's easy to forget that because Mark has set up his gospel with these series of paradoxes. But John is very similar. He's, he's constantly inviting us to see more and more of what it means to say that Jesus is the son of God and the redeemer, Right? Uh, and so in this way, it, it challenges us to get away from thinking like, okay, if I can sort of check off, I've done the commandments, I, I, I can relax. Now, mind you, that's good if you've done the commandments. I don't want to say that you shouldn't. But uh, there's this extra beyond. There's this becoming a son or daughter of God. There's this uh, becoming divinized is what the fathers would even say. They'd go so far as to say that, that Jesus the Son of God empties himself, becomes man, so that we can become God, okay? So that's actually right out of St. Irenaeus and others who, who read him in the second century. And so we see this immediately in what is called the prologue. The prologue is generally considered the first 18 verses of John's Gospel, um, even though it transitions fairly seamlessly into the first stories that John tells us about John the Baptist. And uh, nonetheless, uh, from a very early time in the church's history, we've singled out this passage from God's, John's gospel in important ways. John is often called the theologian. Uh, and uh, sometimes you hear this in uh, 
English Christianity, uh, he's called John the Divine, which just means theologian. And that's because his gospel of the four gospels deals preeminently with theology, which is to say it's about the knowledge of God. And not knowledge about God, but knowing God. Okay? So, um, and this is why John is depicted uh, when the evangelists have the different symbols of the four living creatures. John is depicted as the eagle. And not only do eagles fly very high up in the air so they get a good perspective on everything, uh, but it was believed in those days that eagles could look directly into the sun. And uh, whereas we are too weak to gaze directly at God because uh, we haven't been transformed yet, John the theologian is actually able to see uh, to see who God is, to see and reveal then, tell us what he's seen. So he is represented by the eagle. St. Augustine and others considered this opening passage of John's gospel to be of such sublime worth. They said that human beings could not know this without a special revelation. And uh, after this, the prologue began to have an important place in the liturgical life of the church in the West. Uh, the tendency in the West has been to stress the, the incarnation as the important teaching of this prologue, though there's a lot more, as I'll show you. Um, and in the extraordinary form of the Mass, this is what's known as the final gospel. It's, it's uh, proclaimed at the end of the Mass. And the priest genuflects at the words, the word became flesh. Okay? So that's the... the, the Emphasis on the incarnation. Uh, it's a calling to mind that Christ has been incarnate in the Blessed Sacrament and now is in us, having consumed the Blessed Sacrament. Um, and we see this continued in the Creed when we say that uh, the Son of God came down from heaven, uh, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, we bow except on Christmas and on the Annunciation. You know what we do on those two days? You genuflect, exactly, right. So then those are the two days that we really celebrate the Incarnation in its fullness. Um, and the last place that this occurs is uh, if you know the Angelus Prayer, which is traditionally prayed at 6 a.m., 12 p.m., and 6 p.m. Uh, it's three Hail Marys separated by three verses from the gospel that culminates in the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And one of the customs is either to bow or to genuflect when these words are said. And uh, if you're in a monastery or a church where the Angelus is prayed, the peal will be rung if it's not uh, Holy Week. Uh, when the words and the word became flesh are prayed, we, we ring the peal to celebrate. Okay, so, so this, all this comes out of this prologue, this, this meditation on the incarnation. This revelation in the prologue took place in uh, what St. Paul calls the fullness of time. And uh, the reason I want to emphasize this next part is that, since I've said this is a special revelation in a way, that the fathers of, in the Western church singled this out as a special privilege of St. John's. 
We should also see that it's continuous with the revelation that came before in the Old Testament. So there was a long preparation for the revelation of the incarnation, uh, the revelation of the nature of God. And there were many witnesses and prophecies that foretell uh, what was to take place, perhaps in a shadowy way. But when it did take place, when our Lord uh, came to earth and walked among us, someone like John was ready to understand the significance of his experience as a disciple and then to transmit it to us. So let me talk a little bit about the, uh, a few of the Old Testament foreshadowings of this passage. First of all, if I begin the prologue and I say, in the beginning, what other book does this remind you of? Genesis, Genesis yes. And in fact, they, they use the same words in the Greek versions. And in fact, the name of the book in Hebrew is Bereshit, which means uh, at the beginning or in the beginning of the, when, when something was beginning to be done. And uh, so John is harking back to this time before creation. And when we say in the beginning, we're not talking about uh, the beginning of creation, but even before that, the, the thought of uh, God's own life in a sense. Uh, and we'll see throughout the prologue, there's a lot of meditation on creation, right? Uh, all things were made through the word of God. And when God creates in Genesis chapter 1, he does so by speaking, right? And God said, let there be light, right? And so it's when God speaks, his word... Mind you, when we say God speaks, we're, we're doing this somewhat metaphorically because God is a being utterly unlike ourselves. And so uh, God doesn't need uh, lungs and vocal cords and a mouth to speak. Uh, so when we talk about ourselves being able to speak, um, I'll come back to this in a minute. We imitate God in being able to speak. It's not the other way around. We project that God is able to speak and therefore, because we know what speech is. But rather, there's something about the, the essence of being able to speak, which is in God. This is part of God's very substance. That it, we being in the image of God, we are also able to speak. Okay, in an analogous way to the way God speaks. But when God speaks, things happen in a way that, that is not quite the same for us. Sometimes it's, it's the case. Uh, there's something in, in philosophy called performative speech, which is to say, for example, when the oblates recited the formula today of oblation, uh, you, by saying that, you became oblates. You, you, you did something, you, you made something happen, okay? It's the same thing with marriage vows. When you, when you say, uh, I thee wed, it happens. It's, it's now the truth. It's, it's a different situation from before you spoke those words. When the priest says, this is my body which will be given up for you, it changes the substance of the bread and wine, okay? So, so we do, as human beings, in certain cases, have this power to create by speaking, okay? So we, we do image God in this way, but the, the primal meaning of this creative speech is God speaking. When God speaks, he creates. 
and he creates by speaking. So all things are created in the word. And we see this in Genesis 1. This is an amazing insight that the priests of of the Jewish people had when uh, they wrote down this poem at the beginning of Genesis. And again, when our Lord comes and fulfills this, John is able to take it a step further and identify Jesus as the word, okay? As that word through whom all things were made. In Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, we heard the beautiful, uh, unfortunately sort of truncated version of uh, the 31st chapter on the valiant woman uh, this morning. Uh, Proverbs is a, a probably a book that, that has more importance in the church's history than we tend to realize. In the eighth chapter of Proverbs, uh, the first nine chapters of Proverbs are meditation on wisdom. But wisdom, as Solomon is portraying it, is not an abstract quality that we have when we're able to be prudent or something like that. Wisdom is actually a person. And uh, it's usually portrayed as a woman. Uh, and this is probably because the only persons who could get the sort of education that made access to wisdom possible were men. And so the idea was you sought out wisdom as you would seek out a wife. And so the valiant woman at the end of Proverbs is kind of a summation of all of the great, uh, it's not only a, a great portrayal of uh, the, what it looks like to be a virtuous woman, but it's also an image for wisdom. And so the pursuit, the, the man who marries this kind of woman is similar to the man who pursues wisdom, right? And so uh, wisdom is portrayed as feminine in this place, but uh, as I say, this is somewhat culturally specific because of who was allowed education in those days. Um, when the, it, Solomon comes to chapter 8, wisdom is with God at the creation. Okay? The personified wisdom is sort of playing. It's, it's, wisdom is kind of like a child at play, uh, bringing about the circle of the earth, bringing about the motions of the stars. So all of the, the beautiful things we see in the regularity of creation are because wisdom has set them up. But wisdom is personified and is acting with God in some way to bring about this creation. And so in the New Testament, when uh, the writers of the Gospels and St. Paul are meditating on wisdom, they see in this a prefiguration of Christ himself. So Christ the Son, uh, a sort of child of the Father as it were, uh, delights in bringing forth this orderly, beautiful creation. And uh, again, we see in the prologue that it's through the word all things came to being. And uh, the beauty of the created world that we see comes about through this fruitfulness of God's own inner dialogue, as it were, okay? So Proverbs chapter eight is another place that we see uh, prefigured this, the theology of this prologue. Uh, there are many other places, but the, the last place I'd like to mention is Psalm eight. Uh, How great is your name, O Lord our God, through all the earth, your majesty is praised above the heavens and your truth of the skies, etc. It says, uh, when I look at the things you have made, what is mortal man uh, that you should care for him? 
the son of man that you should keep him in mind. So this uh, term son of man, uh, our Lord appropriates it for himself and he speaks of himself as the son of man. And uh, he becomes the son of man. He's the son of God by, by nature, by right. But he becomes son of man. He becomes one of us. And it says, uh, you have made him little less than the angels. And if you, if you look at um, my, my parallels here, Hebrews 1, in the second column, you'll see this quoted. Um, <laughs> then again, perhaps uh, I didn't get that far. Maybe I didn't include it. If you keep going in chapter 1, if in your own Bibles, <laughs> you'll see that this, this psalm is quoted. And it is uh, playing off of this idea that the Son of God becomes for a time lower than the angels, becomes a man, uh, so that he will be exalted again. And uh, so Psalm 8 is another sort of classical place where we see foreshadowed the incarnation. Okay, let me stop there for a moment. This is fairly dense stuff. So let me see if anybody has any questions before I tackle some themes in the text. Good for you. All right. Um, for this, uh, the rest of this, uh, I will be using the, the side that has the uh, Greek and the text here. It's, it's helpful to see from time to time uh, what the Greek says, what the actual words are, because these words mean slightly different things in Greek than in English, as Father Brendan was saying this morning. Um, so I mentioned that... Uh, for example, the, the very first line in Greek, NRK and Enho Logos, uh, Logos, we usually translate it as word, but we get you know, the English word logic from Logos. So Logos has a, a, a somewhat richer meaning that has to do with how things fit together and, and how things are reasonable. We, we can actually look at, so for instance, uh, when we say that all things are made through the word, uh, we can say all things were made reasonably. And again, if, if you're a physicist, you see this. You know, it's amazing the regularities that you find when you study uh, motions of bodies, for example. You know, if, you, if you look at how the stars move and how planets move and how comets move, and if you look at how uh, electrons move from different levels and back and so on, and how you can describe atoms both in terms of material models and waveforms and so on. It's amazing how it all works. It, you know, it fits. It, you, can, you can recognize a plan in it, right? So that's what it means to say that things are made in the logos, that they conform to some kind of plan, some order that we can apprehend, we can learn it, you know? Um, so it's, it's, it's more than just a word, because I think when we hear the, the word word in English, we tend to think of a kind of conventional sound that we use to represent something else. But logos is a deeper idea than this, and that's, it's, it's closer to logic. You know, the universe has a, corresponds to a kind of logic, and that's, why, uh, that's part of what makes it so intriguing to us. You know? We see these patterns, and we think it's very beautiful. 
Um, so, that's uh, something about the word. Let me say a little more about creation. Uh, that all things were made through him and without him, not anything uh, was made that was made. Uh, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Actually, let me, let me say a bit about light, because this is another challenging idea, but it goes along with my sort of subterranean theme that I'm wanting to emphasize in this. Um, in him was life, and the life was the light. So it's the light of men, uh, but, it, but it's also, you know, it's what the tradition would call uncreated light. Uh, so God is true light. Let me put it this way. God is true light. The light we experience, say, from these nice fluorescent bulbs or from the sun or from fires or from whatever else makes light, these are symbols or signs of the real light, which is God. And what happens when you turn on a light in a dark room? Uh, several things happen. Uh, uh, if you, there are any centipedes around, they go running for the walls. Um, the cockroaches do the same thing. But uh, what happens is if, if you've, uh, you know how it is when you go through a dark room and you can't see anything, and things are vague, and you have to be careful not to bump into stuff. You turn on a light, and suddenly everything is clear. You can see where things are. You can uh, navigate around them. I was thinking of this this morning. I was coming through our, our boiler room, and uh, we've got this huge shipment of uh, caskets for Abbey Caskets, the deliveries we do. And uh, they're stacked all over the place. And so um, in the morning after vigils, if you go through there, you have to turn on a light, because otherwise you're walking, you bump right into a stack of caskets because you can't see them, right? So light makes things comprehensible. We're able to sense where things are, how they fit together, how far away they are from us and from other things. We see what is there. And again, God's being, being uncreated light, if you know God, you know how things are. You know the truth about things. You know how things fit together. You know what, how God sees other people, for example. Right? So it's easy to just see people as we know them. But to see them as God sees them requires illumination. And one of the traditional names for baptism is precisely this. It's illumination. And so what baptism does for us is it gives us a share in God's own life. And as we grow in this new life, this, this divine life, we come to see things, things are revealed to us, unveiled. So a veil is another thing that blocks out light and makes it, you can't see what's behind a veil, right? You reveal something, you pull the veil away and you can see what's behind it, right? So uh, in baptism, Slowly, this new revelation is taking shape in our minds and our abilities to comprehend the things we experience, okay? So, but the true light, all light in creation is merely a contingent thing that is a, a sign for us, kind of sacrament of what God is and helps us to understand what God is, okay? Uh, 
And so, the light shines in the darkness. This is verse 5 now. And the darkness has not overcome it. This word overcome is a difficult Greek word. I actually have to look at it. It's katalabin. Um, this can mean lots of different things, actually. Uh, it can mean the two main sort of fields of meaning have to do with understanding or withstanding. Okay, so in one sense, uh, the things that are in darkness can't understand the light. And so this is why, for instance, we, we need to be baptized because it's baptism that illuminates us to God's truth. Without baptism, we're still groping to some extent in darkness, okay? And, and uncertainty, shadow, doesn't make us bad people, okay? It's really important to understand that when we say that baptism is necessary for salvation. What we're saying, in one sense, is if you want to know life to the fullest, you want to be baptized because then you have divine life. And that unlocks the mysteries of creation, that unlocks the meaning of things, okay? And salvation uh, is related to the, uh, the Latin word salus, or salve, and that can just mean health. You know, if, if, you, want, if you want a robust life, then the divine life is for you. <laughs> if you think about the, the, the prologue to the rule of St. Benedict, uh, he talks about this a lot, right? Now, who is it that desires life? If you desire life, then uh, he, he says, you know, keep the commandments. But it's also to you know, participate in this divine life. He actually refers to uh, Lumen Deificum. This is St. Benedict now. And uh, this means, you know, the light that's made by God or the light that makes us God. Could be either one. Uh, so if you want true life, you'll desire baptism and then to live out of this baptism, to really change one's life, to conform to baptism. Um, on the other hand, darkness also can, this katalaben can also mean, uh, in addition to understanding, it can mean withstanding or the way it's uh, translated here, overcoming. And so what this means is, if we translate it this way, this means that uh, we all experience darkness. We all experience confusion and suffering and pain. Uh, we experience meaninglessness in certain things in life. But this darkness, it can't withstand or overcome the light. The light will triumph. The light will eventually shine everywhere. And these things will be uh, redeemed. These sufferings, these confusions will be brought to sense, okay? Um, I, I had a very interesting talk with, um, uh, many of you know uh, Tony Sorge, who comes from meetings sometimes, and he's, he specializes in his uh, psychological practice in persons who've undergone um, trauma. And one of the difficulties of undergoing trauma is that you can't make sense of what happened. So if, for instance, persons who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder often do things that make no sense to us who don't suffer from that. So for instance, um, I, I've been reading the biography of uh, David Jones, a Catholic poet from the early 20th century, and he served over three years in the trenches in World War I, was shot once, uh, 
saw a lot of people die. Lots of his friends died, as it happened uh, for many um, young soldiers in that war. And uh, uh, into his 40s and 50s, he'd be walking down the street with friends, and all of a sudden he'd run, just take off running and hide. Uh, and, and he couldn't explain why he did it, but it was, a, it was a reaction to trauma that he had experienced. The reason I'm bringing this up is because what, what Tony and I have talked about is trauma and conversion are, are actually similar phenomena because they open up a, a gap in our understanding. Like there's what we understand and then something happens that we can't understand and uh, it takes a while to bridge that gap and to make sense of what has happened in some way. And uh, in the meantime, we go through what feels like darkness and confusion. This is one thing that happens in monastic life a lot. You, you enter the monastery and things become very strange. Uh, not just the brothers, but, but the whole life. Uh, God becomes strange. He's, he doesn't act the way I'm used to. I have to pray in ways that I'm not used to acting. Yeah. Very similar. My wife and I work with RCIA and, and teams in RCIA. Yeah. And you undergo you the candidates. Mm -hmm. There's it starts in September and <laughs> around October, November, around now till a couple months. There's a lot of darkness, and it's not a negative darkness, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of that groping around, and mm -hmm. all of a sudden it seems to like slam and, and just hit them almost as a group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the the brothers have been because studying. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. And that's what's meant to happen because they're. Yeah. they're <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's great. That's, that's very helpful. Uh, so this darkness that we experience, uh, part of what John is is telling us is that this darkness can't withstand or overcome the light of Christ. And so it's a matter of making an act of faith that Christ will illuminate these places in our lives and, and eventually make sense of them. In some cases, it might not happen until after we die. But, but in faith, we can know that God will make sense of these things. This, isn't, this is not to say, by the way, that bad things have to happen you know, according to God's providence. Um, sometimes this is, uh, there's some confusion about this. God allows us humans to make our own decisions and that can have bad consequences sometimes, let's just say. Um, that doesn't mean that God says, oh, it's a, it's a good thing um, that these, this bad thing happened to you because you see in, the, in my plan, it all works out. When I talk about making sense of something, uh, it's understanding somehow what happened to me and, and how it changed me and how it made available, how God saved me. Okay, so I'm not talking about um, a kind of theodicy that like evil things have to happen and God wills them. He, he doesn't actually. He allows them uh, because he, he allows us to be free. Uh, he allows us to do things like crucify his son, for example. Okay, so um, that darkness that, that covered all the land of the crucifixion eventually went away, right, with the resurrection. Uh, fulfillment is another theme of this prologue, which I've touched on a little bit, but here I'm going to skip down uh, to, uh, well, actually, there, there are these interesting interludes where John the Baptist is named, right? Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. So we go right away from all the pre-existent Godhead to the very particular. And this is something John the evangelist likes to do. 
He talks in uh, all kinds of high, interesting, sometimes difficult theology, and then suddenly Jesus Christ is there in the flesh. Um, if you want a really good uh, meditation on this, read the last section of uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar's book called Prayer. You read it, Harrison? Yeah, you know he talks about existence and, uh, what is it? What are the two categories? Existence and, um, I, 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 I don't want to get sidetracked, but the idea is just when John is, is dealing with these very difficult ideas, suddenly he puts you in the midst of it. So, okay, there's a man named John who is sent from God. Um, he came for testimony to bear witness to the light so that all might believe through him. So John is a really important character in all of the Gospels, and he represents the, the fulfillment of the, of the prophets, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The goal of the Old Testament is to point to Christ and to show who he is, to explain who he is. Uh, and John is the personification of this. Okay? So, uh, in the fullness of time, God chooses this man, John the Baptist, and sends him to bear testimony, to point to his son, so that people know where to look. But by doing that, he brings all the Old Testament with him. So, all the Old Testament now, we can find the, how it points to and helps us understand who Christ is. Um, Later on again, so we go back. Uh, he was not the light, John was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. That true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him, uh, etc. I'm going to skip down to verse 15. Again, we get all this beautiful incarnational language and then suddenly it says, John bore witness to him. <laughs> okay, so this, this, what we're talking about in the incarnation is not something abstract. You know, John, John can point to him and say, this is the guy right here, this man. This is the one of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, for he was before me. Okay, so we're, we're constantly being brought back into the here and now, in a sense. Okay, when we talk about the incarnation, we're not talking about something that happened a long time ago and is over with. It's something that's happening right now. And again, we, we can point in the liturgy to Holy Eucharist. We can point to the church. Uh, Christ is still among us now. It's a matter of learning to, to learn from John how to see him, where to look. Okay? Uh, so that we don't get carried away with things that are just uh, sort of overly intellectualized or spiritualized. It, it's... It's happening here right now. Uh, so, and then the last bit of fulfillment is the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we see this in all of the gospels that our Lord is the new Moses. Right before Moses died, uh, I forget which chapter it is, toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, he says, a prophet like me is going to arise. And he's going to teach you everything that I haven't been able to get to. And he will, uh, and it's, it's very significant that Moses dies outside of the promised land. And Moses doesn't make it to the promised land. Actually, it's his <laughs> disciple who has the interesting name of Joshua, which is the name Jesus, uh, is, is actually the one who leads the people into the promised land. And part of what John the Evangelist is getting at here 
And what all the evangelists emphasize is that Jesus is this prophet that Moses prophesied that would come after him. And Joshua represented symbolically. So just as Joshua brought the chosen people into the promised land, the new Joshua, Jesus, the new prophet who came after Moses, leads us to our real home, which is heaven, which is the the kingdom of God. Okay, so this is a fulfillment of a very ancient prophecy. Um, and, and a fulfillment, again, I, when I think about the fact that Moses dies outside the promised land, I have to admit, I, it gives me chills because, uh, uh, you know, Moses is, until John the Baptist, Moses is, you know, the greatest prophet. Uh, you know, he's, he's the founder of, of the, the Jewish faith. He's the liberator. Uh, he does all these things. And yet, uh, what the Old Testament writers see is that Moses, as, as great as he was, he was not, ultimately, he's, he's not the son of God. He's not the one who's going, he's not the Messiah. You know, we have to wait until, for us Christians, Jesus comes to reveal all that had been hidden. In the, in the Old Testament. Moses didn't do it. So Moses, Moses was great. He gave the law. I, you know, there's, there's lots to be said in Moses' favor. But he did not bring grace and truth. That, that comes through Jesus Christ. And that's the first time, I think, in the prologue that the word is named as a man. Jesus the Messiah. Right? So the Messiah that uh, <coughs> Moses announced, that's the one we're talking about. It's Jesus. Uh, the one that the, the chosen people have been waiting for, for, you know, the traditional date of Moses' death is about 1200 BC. So for 12 centuries, there was this waiting uh, for the one who is going to reveal grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. Uh, the only son who is in the bosom of the father has made him known. So, uh, Later on in John's gospel, our Lord will, will actually say, you know, I came from God. I, I, I've seen God, meaning the Father. And he comes to reveal God to us so that we can see him as well. And we can behold God's glory in all things. Okay, um, so that's, uh, a, you know, kind of a whirlwind introduction to John's prologue. My hope is that this will... Um, make it of interest for you to pray over this regularly. Um, but, you know, whole books have been written on the prologue to John's gospel, so um, this is my best effort to sort of whet your appetite a bit. But let me, uh, we have a few minutes left, so perhaps there are questions about what I've been talking about here, or questions about the text that I didn't get to. Yes, Kevin. I see the phrase uh, grace and truth mm-hmm. a couple of times. And uh, um, is there kind of more for us to think about about the other grace? Or sure. Yeah, yeah. So the word grace, uh, the root meaning of this is a, a gift. So it's, it's God's gift to us. It's, uh, it's contrasted with, say, like what we would earn by uh, our own labors. And. Um, in, in the strongest sense, 
it is the divine life itself. When we talk about the gift of God, uh, the other evangelists will tell us that this is the Holy Spirit. And so it's, it's Christ who brings the Holy Spirit. Another prophecy of Moses, by the way. Um, the Spirit of God falls upon these, these 70 elders and they prophesy. Uh, and uh, Joshua comes back to him and he finds that there are two other people who weren't with the 70 who are prophesying as well. And he thinks there's something wrong, you know, because they were supposed to be with the other people. And he comes and sort of tattles on them and tells Moses, hey, these guys are doing this. And Moses said, ah, would that all the people would have the Spirit. (laughs) So this is another prophecy. You know, would that all the people would have the Holy Spirit. And it's Christ who gives this this gift of grace. We see this in um, many explanations of the Annunciation. When Gabriel says to Mary, hail Mary full of grace. uh, The strong sort of theological meaning of this is that the Holy Spirit will overshadow her and she will actually carry God in her womb, right? So she's, she's filled with God's gift in a way that uh, the, the rest of us, you know, hope to attain. So um, this is what it means to say that the Lord brings grace. So it's a participation in God's life. Truth, um, you know, I've touched on this a little bit. Truth is, is the gradual approach to knowledge of God. And, and so it's in from the perspective of God that we can see how things are true and we can make ourselves disposed to this in, in the way that, that sort of settles it in our own minds and hearts, what truth is. So it's Christ who brings that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. good. John. Um, earlier before you mentioned that, uh, of course, Paul continued to go to the temple mm-hmm. and I think the apostles, they did. They, talked they did, exactly, right, yeah. And I always sort of heard this once, um, that it was for, you know, the prayer, they did the prayer and preaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that Paul, uh, he had his pledge, his Nazarene pledge or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he did, there was a sacrifice involved with that, but I've heard some people argue that they did not, because Christ is the, you know, the temple was ripped open and mm-hmm. Christ is the sacrifice to mm-hmm. fulfill the, uh, that they did not go to the temple for liturgy or for worship. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't participate in the sacrifice. Yeah. I don't know if that's, if you've heard. Um, I, I thought about that uh, when I was preparing this because, uh, um, you know, in, in trying to present Paul in this way, I want to, I want to uh, draw attention both to the continuity and the rupture in his life, you know? Um, Because again, another interesting thing is um, uh, he has Timothy circumcised. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you know, circumcision is no longer a requirement of the law. And yet Timothy, because his mother was Jewish, they felt that this was the right thing to do, even though he was already a Christian, you know? So um, there is this interesting uh, transitional time before the temple's destroyed. Father Brendan, um, he made allusion to that this morning. Um, I'm not sure what they did with regard to the sacrifices, but it is the case that, uh, as, you know, as, as you pointed out, the veil is torn, and the 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 sort of the function of the temple has been spent. We don't need it anymore. <laughs> you know, um, uh, and and yet there was this interesting transitional time and we don't get a lot of information about it. 
And I don't think, uh, you know, at least the Jerusalem church did not rupture from the temple. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, uh, they always considered James a good Jew. Or, mm -hmm. or, or, I forget how they described him. But he was well regarded in, by the um, mm -hmm. scribes. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So he was still a devout man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure they did quite it. You know, I don't know how the church, the early church, um, later, of course, things split apart. Yeah. Uh, it, it occurs to me that may, maybe a place where you might go just to, to meditate on this more is uh, chapter 7 of Acts, the martyrdom of Stephen. St Stephen's actually much stronger than the others in terms of sort of an anti-temple polemic. Okay, exactly. yeah. well, he, yeah. and, and he was the, what's the Latin speaker? I mean, Greek, no, yeah, he was a Greek speaker. Yep, he was. That's right, that's right. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, so... Um, so one of the things that was said about the Christians and one of the reasons they were persecuted is because it was said that not only Jesus, but other Christians were saying that uh, Moses should be overthrown and we shouldn't offer sacrifice and the temple is going to be destroyed. Um, there obviously was something to this because it, kept, it keeps coming up. And this is exactly what Stephen is martyred for. Uh, um, and there does seem to be a little tension in the early church between those who... Um, maintain a fairly high regard for the temple. And then Stephen, who um, sees that the, the temple can be kind of a stand-in. Um, you see a similar kind of thing in Jeremiah. You know, um, in, in the seventh chapter of Jeremiah, he gives this very strong prophecy against the temple. And the idea is that the temple is meant, it's kind of a similar thing to what I was saying at the very beginning. So if... If the truth, if what, if what we're meant for is to go, go to God through, through Christ, to the truth, um, the temple is, is meant to be a, a shadowy sort of prefigurement of that. And, and from this encounter with the truth, it, it requires us to live in a certain way, right? And what, what Jeremiah says is if you don't change your life and live according to what those sacrifices are meant to signify, it's not going to save you. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. That's what actually what happens. So I think this tension is already very early in the Old Testament. It has to do with whether people could see what the, the sacrifices are meant to signify or not. And if we don't see that and then are, undergo a certain kind of compunction, then the sacrifice is not functioning. It, we, we can't bribe God. I guess that's the point. <laughs> the sacrifices are not about bribing God. They're, they're about helping us to see who God is so we can change to make our lives more fitting for him. Yeah. Uh, yes, Dennis. Yeah, I'm, I'm humbly uh, grateful I didn't have to learn how to write this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> yeah, I, and, and by the way, my, my transliteration, don't tell anybody in the Society for Biblical Literature about it because I did it kind of fast and not according to the standards, but Matthew. Um, this notion of yeah. Um, if I remember correctly, it's not simply that he died before he could get there. Mm -hmm. it, was, it, it was punishment. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or, um, yeah. A, 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 a uh, disobedience. Mm -hmm. Where he, instead of speaking uh, the water from the rock, he struck the rock. Mm -hmm. right? right. And I've always found that very mysterious. Yeah. And difficult to understand why God made that difference. Uh huh. And, um, and, and yet Moses is, you know, one of the most revered uh, figures in the mm -hmm. 
I guess I'm, I'm, I'd like to know if you can uh, recommend any resources for understanding that, uh, that mystery. Yeah. Let, let me think about that, and I'll, I'll, uh, if I think of something, I will send it to you. Um, I guess what I would say about that, this is personal opinion, my own prayer over these passages. I, I think Moses represents kind of, you know, the, the tragedy of, of man without God. You know, so, and, and the difficulty before the advent of Christ, the difficulty of uh, really giving oneself over to faith because it's, it, he falters in faith, right? Um, God has, and, and we see this throughout the whole Exodus uh, with, with all the people, you know, God does all these incredible things and then people complain because they can't have leeks for lunch, you know? And, uh, and it, it even affects Moses, you know? Um, there's, uh, there's, there is a passage where, uh, Father Edward, do you remember? It's, they, they, I think it's Psalm 70, 78, which is the usual numbering. We call it 77, where you know, they made Moses' heart grow bitter. Uh, so the people complaining all the time, Moses got sort of knocked down by it. And so he, he himself wasn't able to sort of withstand the common feelings of complaint that God wasn't doing enough. And uh, so for me, it's, it's a figure of tragedy in the sense that um, w- without this illumination, all of us are liable to, to fall short, even Moses, you know. Um, that said, uh, who appears at the transfiguration, yeah. right, in glory? So, you know, it, 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 as I say, sometimes it's not until after death that these things make sense. And uh, even though Moses didn't make it into the promised land, literally, he did spiritually. <laughs> right? So, well, we should stop there. Uh, thank you so much. Um, it's, uh, it's always great to see so many people here and to be able to share this with you. So um, if you're able to, come on up and join us for Sext and uh, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Our help is in the name of the Lord. You made heaven and earth.